Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Christ's name by the power of your Spirit who's working in us. And I pray for this session, for all of our sessions here. I pray that you would teach us. I pray that we would be, our hearts would be stirred up to draw near to you. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this session, we'll consider Puritan thoughts on prayer. Um, before we get to Puritan thoughts on prayer, though, it'll be helpful to answer two questions. One, who are the Puritans? And then two, why do we care what the Puritans have to say about prayer? So first question, who are the Puritans? How would you answer that question? So this will be a little more interactive. How would you answer that question? Who are the Puritans? Okay, that's good. That's good. Totally wrong, but good. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Anybody else? Took the Bible seriously. Pursuit of holiness. So, Puritans, in the strictest sense, are those who remained in the Church of England during the 16th and 17th century, and they sought to reform the Church of England. If you know anything about English history, and we're not going to go into that here, but you'll know that the Church of England was a kind of a strange hybrid of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. So the Protestants rejected Roman Catholicism and essentially protested against the Roman Catholic Church. So in the Church of England, which is the National Church of England, there was a strange mixture of Protestant belief and Roman Catholic practice. If this is new to you, just note that the Puritans were Protestants who wanted to purify the Church of England, and they sought to reform the Church of England. So in the strictest sense, that's what a Puritan is. Those who remained in the Church of England during the 16th and 17th centuries and sought to reform the Church of England. For bonus points, who are these guys? Who is that? Nice, William Perkins. Thomas Watson, okay. Who's that? Thomas Goodwin, wow. So William Perkins, Thomas Watson, Thomas Goodwin. No more bonus points. Um, y'all are going to get too many. Um, so while Puritans in the strictest sense stayed in the Church of England, saw this reform, we can also define Puritanism broadly in terms of what they believed. So in terms of their beliefs and practices. So Puritans are those who follow in these beliefs and practices. The Puritans were orthodox. What that means, and we're not going to go into this. We have questions asked later, but that means they adhered to the historic Christian faith as summarized in the ancient creeds, Nicaea, so Trinity, things like that. The Puritans were reformed, meaning they held the core beliefs, held to the core beliefs of the Protestant Reformation. Scripture is the authority of authorities. All of life exists for the glory of God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. With a few exceptions, they were Calvinistic, meaning they embraced a high view of God, along with the radical corruption of man. While the Puritans upheld Reformed Orthodox beliefs, they were also committed to lives of godliness as prescribed in the Scriptures. And as we look to the, to the Puritans, we find godly men zealous for the Lord who knew their Bibles well. 
And out of their zeal for the Lord, they gave themselves to meditation and prayer. John Owen writes, meditation is pondering on the word and on our hearts to bring them into greater harmony with each other, while prayer is directed to bring our souls into a state of complete conformity with the mind and the will of God. So the Puritans were zealous in their fight against sin, and they sought to draw near to God through meditation and prayer. And that's why we want to know what they had to say about prayer, because they not only spoke about prayer, but they gave themselves to a life of prayer. I'm sure some of you are familiar with the Valley of Vision. Some of you have seen that. Some of you probably have a copy of the Valley of Vision. This is a collection of Puritan prayers. Well, if you read through the Valley of Vision, you will find the depths of their prayers. The Puritans knew how to pray. Not to be impressive, When I read those prayers, I am cut to the heart by men who prayed. They threw themselves before the Lord. So they understood the necessity of prayer, and they provide us with great encouragement today. So who are the Puritans? They're godly men and women who were devoted to God through His Word. And we will do well to listen to their thoughts on prayer because they exemplify godly living through meditation and prayer. Puritans not only taught, on prayer, but they prayed. And while we could survey Puritan thought on prayer, I thought it'd be best for us to focus on one Puritan and one sermon that he preached. Has anyone ever heard of John Preston? Anyone know the name? For some of you, maybe, many of you is probably not that familiar to you. Um, John Preston was born in 1587. He died in 1628. He didn't live a long life, uh, relatively speaking. He was converted under the preaching of John Cotton. Now, this is what's interesting. He went, to, he went with some friends to hear John Cotton preach. Do you think he went to hear him preach, or do you think he went to ridicule John Cotton? He went to ridicule him. You're probably like, well, you wouldn't have given us that option if he hadn't done that, right? <laughs> so he went with his friends to ridicule the preaching of John Cotton because John Cotton was a simple, plain preacher. And these guys were trained you know, in rhetoric, and so they went to ridicule him. Interestingly, that night he shows up at John Cotton's door. Do you think it's because he went back to ridicule him, or do you think he was convicted by the preaching of the word? He was convicted by the preaching of the word. And so his his heart was pricked by the word being preached. He went to ridicule, and then he heard the word of God preached clearly, and he heard Christ and the glory of Christ. And after his conversion, he turned his attention to the study of divinity. He had become an influential teacher, a powerful preacher. He would often preach before the king in his court. And as one man said after hearing him preach before the king, he talked like one that was familiar with God. So while Preston was on his deathbed, he chose four men to edit and publish his sermons, or his writings, I should say. Um, If you're familiar with the Puritans, you'll know some of these names. Richard Sibbs. John Davenport, Thomas Goodwin, and John Ball. And the work we'll be considering was edited and published by Sibbs and Davenport a year after his death, and it's titled The Saint's Daily Exercise. This treatise consists of five sermons preached on 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Let's go ahead and turn back there. Um, We were there earlier, but let's go ahead and go back there. First Thessalonians 5.17. 
I'll read 16 through 18. So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So John Preston preached five sermons on verse 17, which I believe in his translation says, pray unceasingly. So it's two verses, preach five sermons on them. Um, If you're familiar with Puritan preaching, these men would often preach a handful or several handfuls of sermons on the same biblical text. Thomas Boston, for instance, preached 58 sermons, yeah, 58 sermons on Hebrews 12, 14. So John Preston's, you know, he only preaches five on one verse here, um, but this verse in his translation only had two words. So uh, we'll give him some credit for that, right? But he preached five sermons on this same text. And so the reason why we're looking at Preston is because as Don Kistler um, in Puritans on Prayer, he says this, John Preston's The Saints Daily Exercise is the quintessential Puritan work on prayer. So as I read through these sermons, um, I was encouraged and convicted. His simplicity, I mean, it, it just it struck me as well as his precision. Um, and since we don't have time to go through all five, um, I want us to key in on his second sermon. And in this sermon, he addresses hindrances to prayer as well as objections to prayer. I don't know if we'll get through all the objections. We'll just see how, how fast we can go. Um, but, but that's not the goal here. I mean, I want you all to be able to chime in. If you have questions, please do so. But this is how he begins the second sermon. It begins with an exhortation to not neglect the duty of prayer. He says that if you neglect it, it exposes you to great disadvantage. This is a common theme in the Puritans. You'll see this about you know, they, they won't just say, hey, don't, not, you need to pray. Don't neglect prayer. No, they will explain, this exposes you to great disadvantage. This is not good for you. This is deadly. This is dangerous. And he goes on to say, if we neglect prayer, worldly mindedness will be ready to grow upon us. We shall be apt to be carnal. We shall forget God, forget ourselves, and forget the good purposes and desires we have. And I love what he says next. And therefore, that you may keep your hearts in order, you must keep a constant course in this duty. As sleep composes drunkenness, so prayer will compose the affections. A man may pray himself sober again. So his exhortation is Paul's exhortation. Be constant in prayer. For Preston, this means your life will be marked by prayer. He actually prescribes morning and evening prayers. Um, He says that's what is meant by constant prayer, but I'll leave that for you to wrestle with. But after his introduction, he considers three hindrances to prayer. Three hindrances to constant prayer. But before we look at Preston, let me ask you, what hinders you from praying as you ought? What are some hindrances that keep you from praying? Yeah, getting too busy. That's a common one in our day. That's for sure. Anything else? That probably summarizes it for most of us. He does address that one um, in his. Here's his list. I mean, that would fall into the first one. Worldly cares and worldly mindedness. His second one, ignorance of the nature of God. And then third, the sins we commit. So let's just think through these. And we'll go through these relatively quickly. Um, 
So the first one, worldly cares and worldly mindedness. He says, worldly cares hinder spiritual prayer, spiritual conference, and the holy performance of almost every duty. So what are worldly cares? Okay, that's, <laughs> that could fall in there. But are worldly cares necessarily always bad or evil? No, right? Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.33, he says, The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. So in that things, worldly things are contrasted with pleasing the Lord. And he writes that the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, while the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. So in this sense, worldly cares are not necessarily evil. It's not wrong to be concerned with you know, money, food, work around the house, appointments, etc. Those things aren't wrong. But as Preston points out, these things can actually be a great hindrance to prayer. I mean, let's just say you have a busy day or a busy week on the horizon. It's easy to neglect prayer. Being busy with good things can hinder our prayer life. And this could actually turn into a vicious cycle. We get too distracted by worldly prayers that, I mean, sorry, sorry. We get too distracted by worldly cares that we don't pray. And then we become anxious about these worldly cares because we don't take the time to pray. So for some of you, the solution is to consider that to which you've given yourself whether you're concerned with more than you ought to be concerned with. For others, you need to slow down a little. Right, you may all, the solution is prayer. Preston writes, you may object now, aye, but it will cost us much to do this. Remember that the time spent in calling upon God does not hinder you. In other things, you see it well enough. You know the baiting of the horse does not hinder the journey, nor does the oiling of the will. In our day, think about filling up your car with gas before you go on a long trip, eating breakfast before a demanding day. You do these things, yet many of you are too distracted by worldly cares to pray. So that's the first hindrance that he mentions. I think it's very relevant for us today. The second hindrance is ignorance of the nature of God. Preston writes, another great cause of this difficulty to prayer is because we do not do, sorry, is because we do not well consider the nature of God. We lack faith in his power and in his providence, for if we saw the providence of God and acknowledged it more, we should be ready to call upon him. So just think about this one. We're hindered by our ignorance of God. So we're hindered in our prayer life, because we're ignorant of who God is. Preston is saying if we had a better grasp on God's nature, then we'd be all the more ready to call upon the one who calls us to pray. If we better understood God's compassionate mercy, then we would run to him for mercy. If we better understood God's care for us, then we would pray for our daily bread. If we had a better understanding of his faithfulness, then we would pray his sweet promises back to him. If we better understood God's power, then we would call upon Him to get us through the trials of life. But because we are ignorant of God, we turn to ourselves or to other creatures to help us instead of God. So Preston writes, the lack of faith in His providence 
that the Lord is not seen in his greatness and mighty power causes men to be backward to seek him, but very forward to seek the creature. We often run after others instead of running to God. So one final hindrance to prayer is the sins we commit. He writes, the sins we commit, especially gross sins, are a great hindrance to prayer. Turn to James 4. We can go to a number of verses, but if time permits, we'll allude back to this. I'm going to read 2 and 3, but my focus here is 3. So you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James here is referring to petitions that are made in an ungodly manner. For instance, someone might be praying for something that is good to use solely upon self, to use solely for self-satisfying pleasure. This sort of prayer is made in the manner of my kingdom come. My will be done instead of your will be done. Your kingdom come. And this is a great hindrance to our prayer. Much more can be said here, but Preston notes how sin hinders our prayers because the sins we commit keep us from the spiritual and cheerful performance of prayer. For sin wounds the conscience. It disjoins and dismembers the soul, and a disjointed member you know is unfit to do any business. And in another sermon he says, Though we pray and pray hard, yet our sins cry louder than our prayers. They drown our prayers. They make a greater noise than they. So those are the three hindrances that that Preston mentions, three hindrances to prayer, worldly-mindedness and worldly cares, ignorance of the nature of God and the sins we commit. To conclude this section of the sermon, he says, I will add no more to press this upon you. Enough has been said. I beseech you to consider it. So before we move on, any questions or comments about these hindrances? Anything you want to add before we move along? Yes, sir. I think about the worldly cares. I think about Mary and Martha. Mm. The, the good versus the best. Yeah. Yeah. It's because uh, Mary uh, was not ignorant of the nature yeah. of God. That's good. Yeah, that connects both of those together there. She sought the good thing, <clears throat> being with Jesus there. I mean, it was good to serve food, but you have, you have amen, amen. But you have Jesus Christ, Son of God, in the flesh right there. And so, yeah, the, the, the bread of life right there. Very good. Thank you for that. Anything else before we move along? Yes, sir. This is a good introduction, but I want to see this in the Bible. All right. <laughs> nice. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Shannon can, can teach it. Here he is. <laughs> Got him in the back there. All right. No, that's good. Anything else? All right. Well, after addressing these hindrances to prayer, he 
addresses several objections to prayer. We'll just go through. He does four. We'll see if we make it through them or not. My, my goal is not to rush or just cover content. We might. But his goal in this sermon is to address and remove the causes for our negligence in prayer. That's why he addressed hindrances, and now he's going to address several objections. So what are some objections that people might make to prayer? Doesn't work? Yeah, he'll, he'll address that one. We'll get to that one. Anything else? Other objections people might make? We'll get to that one too. God already knows our needs. Why should we pray? It's good. Anything else? Yeah, and that'll be, well, that'll be included here. We'll, we'll look at that too. Those are the things that, that Preston will address here. So Preston's first objection, and I'm going to summarize it, so I'm not just going to leave it in these words. Okay, there we are. I moved too fast. Okay, so first, a man is ready to say, what need do I have to spend so much time and be so large in the expression of my wants to God when he already knows them? I cannot make them better known to him. He knows them well enough already, and therefore what need is there of it? So simply put, if God already knows what I need, why do I need to ask him for it? How would you answer that objection? What would you say? God already knows my needs. Why should I pray? Okay. It's a command. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So we might say, like I said, he commands it. He commands it because this is God's ordained means for bestowing his grace upon us. You have not because you ask not. Preston, here's his response. To this answer in a word, because it is an objection that does not have much weight in it, it is true. The Lord knows your wants, but he will have you know them. Otherwise, you will not seek him. You will not set a price upon the things that he bestows upon you. You will not be thankful to him when he has granted them. And therefore, you shall find our Savior Christ uses this very argument as a means to quicken us to prayer, saying, your heavenly Father knows what you have need of. What then? Shall we not therefore pray? Yes, says he, therefore pray all the more earnestly. Since he knows your wants, he'll be more ready to hear your request. So just to pick out a few of the points he makes here. First of all, he says there's not much weight to this argument. This objection doesn't have much weight to it. Why would you say that? There's, this goes against biblical commands and biblical examples, right? So he says, I'm not going to say very much here because there's not much to say. Second, he says that prayer leads to thankfulness. When we pray and we receive what we pray for, our focus is upon God who bestows this upon us. Furthermore, he mentions Jesus and Jesus' response from Matthew 6, 8. This is where Jesus is, is he's teaching his disciples to pray. He tells them, do not be like the Gentiles who think that they will be heard because of their many words. He says, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask them. And then what does he teach them to do? To pray. So he says, your heavenly father knows what you need before you even ask. Here's how you pray. What we might use as an objection to prayer 
Jesus uses as a reason for prayer. Yes, your heavenly Father already knows what you need, therefore pray all the more earnestly for it. It's pretty amazing to consider that God ordains all that comes to pass. And God has ordained prayer. It is ordinarily His will to bring to pass that which He ordains through the prayers of His saints. James reminds us, you do not have because you do not ask. So any questions or comments here on this first objection? I won't belabor it long, as Preston didn't either. Some of these will keep coming back up. We'll build a little bit. So the second objection. God is just and must keep His promise. So when He has fully purposed it, what need is there for so much praying to bring it to pass? You may have heard us say, or others say, pray God's promises back to Him. But why? Why should we pray for God to do that which He has already promised to do? How would you answer this one? God has ordained that grass should grow. Mm. Seed time and harvest will not pass away. Mm. That doesn't mean that rain is useless. He has ordained that rain falls so that the grass he ordained will grow. So he has ordained things will happen, but also that prayer will be the means by which it will happen. Amen. Amen. You know, as we've been going through Revelation on Wednesday night with the youth, it's amazing to see the prayers of the saints in heaven. And how the prayers of the saints, how God is answering the prayers of the saints. That They've been, I mean, we have the incense that I would say Christ makes those prayers tasteful and delightful before God. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf. But God answers the prayers of His saints. He works through the prayers of His saints. Not because He is reliant upon the prayers of the saints. So not that because He's reliant on the, our prayers, but because He's ordained our prayers. He's ordained to work through our prayers. And that's why in Revelation, what I'm talking about specifically, they're saying, when, O oh God, will you avenge our blood, the, the blood of the martyrs? And then their prayers come before him, and then he pours out his judgment. God works through the prayers of his saints. So as we think about this, um, what Preston says here, he begins his response by saying, the promises of God are to be understood with this secret condition annexed. I will do such and such a thing for you if you pray. And he then refers to several examples from Scripture. His first example is Elijah. God promised Elijah that it should rain. You're familiar with the event, right? So God promised to send famine, and He also promised to send rain. And in James 5, 7, and 18, we can go ahead and read that. We're right there. So turn over to verse 17 of chapter 5 in James. So Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And as Preston notes, God promised Elijah that it should rain, yet we see that he prayed and contended much in prayer. Other examples that he mentions are David, Daniel, and Jesus Christ. About Jesus, he writes, the example of our Savior Christ is without exception, who had all the promises sure to him, yet he prayed, yes, he spent whole nights 
in prayer. But he doesn't just stop with examples. He provides one more response to this objection. Praying God's promises back to him leads to worship. As we are actually acknowledging God's attributes when we pray. Preston remarks that praying God's promises back to him gives acknowledgement of his attributes more than anything. For instance, prayer acknowledges God's omniscience and omnipresence. So what does omniscience mean? It's all knowing what's omnipresence mean. Everywhere. So how does prayer acknowledge God's omniscience? He knows our needs. How does it acknowledge his omnipresence? Is near to hear. So prayer acknowledges the fact that God hears all our prayers. He knows the secrets of our heart. We can pray silently and God still hears. If I have a thought silently, do you know what I'm thinking? Now you might read my body language a little bit, but you can't know, you can't hear me, right? I could think something and be just still as a board. You would have no idea what I'm thinking. God knows the secrets of our heart. I mean, think about that. So think about God, how how prayer acknowledges His all-knowingness and His all-presence. He's everywhere. You can pray anywhere. You don't have to schedule an appointment. Now, you may need to be disciplined to schedule time for you to pray, to remind you to be disciplined to pray, but you don't have to say, you know, God, will you be available at 2 o'clock this afternoon? I mean, it sounds foolish even just saying that because God is all-knowing and He's everywhere. He has no limits. So when we pray to God, we're saying that God will hear our prayers, whether it be in my bedroom, whether it be as I'm walking, whether it be on the car, on the airplane, wherever we may be, God hears our prayer. And we're acknowledging that as we pray. Prayer also acknowledges God's almighty power. For when we pray, we're saying that God is able to do all that we ask. We're acknowledging that God is able That he has the ability to do what we ask. Prayer also acknowledges God's mercy and goodness. Prayer not only acknowledges that God is able, but he's exceedingly willing to help. And prayer acknowledges his truth. That as he has promised, so he will perform it. God will not lie. He will do as he says he will do. So Preston says, when I go and seek him, all the attributes of God are acknowledged in prayer. So this very praying to God is a worshiping of Him because it acknowledges His attributes and His relation to us and ours to Him. So that concludes his response to the second objection. Why pray if God has already promised? Well, first of all, this is God's intended means to fulfill His promises. Second, we see examples of this all throughout the Scriptures. And third, prayer, praying God's promises back to Him leads to worship. Because we are acknowledging God's attributes in prayer. So any questions or comments here? Do you see prayer like that? Do you, acknowledge, do you see prayer as an acknowledgement of God's attributes? An acknowledgement of who He is? Do you see prayer as actually an act of worship? As you pray His promises back to Him? I mean, think about that. I mean, I, I, the Puritans are so helpful. They really add, I would say, add layers to our prayer. So oftentimes, we can have this idea that prayer is just me asking God to do something for me. 
I remember a while back whenever um, someone was talking about that, I don't want to get political, but I'll just say the two candidates that were there. Someone was like, how on earth could these be the two candidates that we could elect? Years back. And I just said, we need to pray. Have we prayed? And, and the person objected. Like, so prayer, if prayer is so important, how come, it has, how, how come we're here? How, I mean, lots of people prayed. How can we be here? I was like, that's such a misunderstanding of what prayer is. Um, we're acknowledging, we're, it's making it sound like prayer is putting us in the power. Uh, as, as if, oftentimes we can look at prayer as man's here and God is here to do what we want him to do. And God is now dependent upon my prayer for him to act and in a way that I want him to act. And, and what we do there is we're saying that we wield the power and God needs to be at our beck and call to do our bidding. That is a gross misunderstanding of prayer. A gross misunderstanding of prayer. That's why one of those hindrances to prayer is an ignorance of God, but also one of the reasons for poor prayers and, and actually, I would say, sinful prayers is because we don't understand who God is. And we oftentimes pray to God as though, I mean, you know the language, the genie in the bottle type of God. And that is an abuse of a privilege that we've been given to pray to God Almighty. And yet we pray as if, he should do what I want him to do, and then when he doesn't, what do we do? We get upset with God. We doubt God. We say, well, God doesn't exist because he didn't do what I wanted him to do. But who really is God in that situation? I'm making myself to be God. And then I'm saying, why didn't God act the way I told him to act? The Puritans help us. They help us greatly to remember what we are doing when we pray, acknowledging God and his attributes. That's why I wanted to begin this morning in that first session with proper prayer is made to God, acknowledging God as he is. Not just, okay, I've got God here and I'm praying to him, but thinking who it is I'm praying to, the God Almighty who is everywhere, who is infinitely perfect. This God who is infinitely just has invited me, has drawn near to me through Christ that I might draw near to him. Such a privilege that we have in prayer. Third objection. What can the prayers of a weak man do? Can they change the purpose of the Almighty God? If He does intend to do this thing for me, shall I hope to alter Him? How would you respond? How can the prayers of man change the purposes of God? How would you respond? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> but does that prayer make God change? Would you say this is the wrong question to ask? Maybe. Yeah. It's a misunderstanding of prayer. To think that our prayers alter God goes against God's nature. Malachi 3.6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O Jacob, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17, we read that there's no variation or shadow due to change in God. So God does not change, and our prayers do not change God. So to think that we can change God through our prayers is a misunderstanding of prayer, but what do we do with passages like the persistent widow in Luke 18? You know the parable, right? What does she do? Goes to the judge and asks. What kind of judge? 
unrighteous. unrighteous judge. And she begs, right, over and over, persistently. So Jesus gave this example that we might pray persistently and not lose heart. And in this parable, what does the judge do? He gives in. He changes his mind, right? He answers the woman because of her persistence. But if we take that parable at face value, that parable is not teaching us that God changes. It's teaching us that this unrighteous judge changed, right? Besides the point, it's to teach us to persist in prayer. But why should we persist in prayer if God changes not? Well, Preston begins his response by saying, in answer to this, I say briefly that when you call upon God, He is not changed by your prayers, but the change is wrought in you. And because we are changed through persistent prayer, we are then made fit. Because we were unfit before. Preston explains, when you go about to strive with God in prayer, when you contend and wrestle with Him, for so we ought to do, when you use many reasons to persuade Him, you do not alter Him, but yourselves. For those arguments you use are not so much to persuade Him to help you as to persuade your hearts to more faith, to more love, to more obedience, to more humility and thankfulness. And that, indeed, is the reason why prayer prevails with God. Not that the very sending up is that which prevails with Him, but because a faithful spiritual prayer puts the heart in a better disposition so that a man is now made more ready to receive a blessing at God's hand than he was before. So Preston observes that as we pray persistently, we grow more faithful, more loving, more obedient, more humble, and more thankful. In fact, he says as we pray persistently, we're being made ready for God to bestow His blessings upon us. I remember whenever we first started attending um, PBC, we would go to the 6 o'clock Bible study um, on Wednesday nights um, in the ladies' parlor at our old location. Um, as we were going through 1 Kings, that was one of the, I think that was one of the first studies we were doing. Tommy would often ask, some of you would remember this, some of you were there. Tommy would often ask, if God is sovereign, why pray? And I remember one of the godly men would answer frequently, Prayer aligns our will to God's will. I think that summarizes what Preston is saying here. It's not that our prayer changes God, but God changes us through our prayers as we pray according to His will. It's like the man who guides his boat into the harbor. He casts his line to the shore. He pulls on the rope as if he's pulling the shore to himself. But in all reality, he is being pulled to the shore. That's what it's like. It might seem as though God is changing his mind, yet God is changing you through prayer. Anything else here before we move on to one final objection? It's like we were talking, you know, I I compared it to the seven stages of grief, Mm -hmm. which... Yeah, I mean, that's a worldly, yeah. secular model, but prayer brings us to that last stage. Mm. Hope yeah. and acceptance. Mm. You know, if we don't pray, how are we to trust in God's will? Yeah. Especially when it seems like it's bad. 
Yeah. You know, when we're suffering or we've lost someone, mm. we want to lash out and say, why me? Mm. Why, God, would you do this to me? Yeah. Prayer brings us to acceptance and mm. hope and yeah, His will and His goodness for yeah. us. Yeah, God changes not, but we change. And, and that's good. And prayer is one of those means. Yes, sir? First John 5, 14, 15, it says, We can have confidence in our prayers, but if we ask anything according to His will, He yeah. hears us. And Amen. Hears us. We get the desires of our heart. Amen. 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 That's good. Yes, ma'am? I guess I was just going to say, I don't know why, but it seems like we tend to be more accepting of the fact that we recognize that God uses means and then to draw people to himself and to in salvation to me it just seems like sort of a in other words God doesn't ha- didn't have to design things that way or do things that way yeah. to save people but he chose to and that is that is how he's ordained that it should be and so in the same way mm. what's the difference I guess in yeah. some ways with prayer you know Absolutely. it's yeah. We don't maybe understand all of it because he is sovereign and he has preordained so many things, mm-hmm. but yet this is the way that he has chosen to commune with his people, mm-hmm. to grow with his people, yeah. to use communion and prayer to answer yeah. our prayers. And so yeah. there's like a parallel, I guess. Amen. That's good. Yes, sir. Well, if, if Jesus needed to go to God <laughs> in prayer, yeah. Yeah. who am I not to? Absolutely. Yeah, the simple, I mean, that's the, the simple faith. God commands it. We do it. We see examples of it. We follow. I mean, we see examples of the Son of God doing it. We follow. And my hands in Scripture. I mean, um, you know, just the, that, that's a the simple faith. We have commands in Scripture to do it. And like you say, Jesus prayed. And, and this is one of God's ordained means. I mean, while it doesn't always make sense to us, well, the thing is, that can lead us to disobedience oftentimes. When in all reality, it may not make sense to us, well, that ought to drive us more and more to God in prayer, into His Word through prayer. So very good. So to get to that last objection here, this goes with the one you had mentioned earlier about not working. Um, Preston's final objection, we see there are many men who do not call upon God and yet enjoy many mercies. It may be that a man can say with himself, when he did not used to pray, that he had health, sleep, and protection. Again, on the other hand, he has prayed for such and such things, and yet they have not been granted. Simply put, why should I pray if God blesses some apart from prayer and withholds blessings from others who do pray? So just to go through the first question pretty briefly, quickly, Preston, he gives several examples of God bestowing blessings upon natural men who, as we see, those blessings actually led to their demise. Jeroboam. Who was Jeroboam? King of Israel, right? He's the first king of the northern kingdom. Preston writes, God made Jeroboam a king and gave him a kingdom. And he says, this type of man is not blessed by these things, but is cursed. And so would be better off without them. Then he considers Ahab. Who's Ahab? He's a king of Israel as well. Good king or bad king? Bad king is an understatement, right? Um, Pretty wicked guy. He would have been, as Preston says, would have been better off without his vineyard. He writes, Obtaining a vineyard brought death to Ahab, and getting the kingdom was the destruction of Jeroboam. 
So as Preston implies, don't assume that the natural man is blessed by God because he receives what appear to be blessings from God. And I would add to this, for many, the blessings they enjoy in this life are as good as it gets. So don't be envious of the natural man or of the man who appears to be blessed apart from prayer, for that blessing may very well be a curse. John Flavel, another Puritan, he said, Prosperity excites the love and gratitude of the saints, the author of their mercies, while it inflames the sinner's lust. It fills the good man's heart with benevolent and grateful affliction. So I bring that quote to your attention because what for one man excites love and gratitude towards God, for another man it incites his lusts. So in response to the first question, Preston warns us not to assume that the natural man is blessed by God because he receives material blessings. Now moving on to the second part of the question, which is what happens to the man who prays and prays and prays yet receives not? Well, to answer this, Preston writes, if you have not been heard in your prayers, consider if you have not prayed amiss. It is a common fault among us when we have spent much time in prayer, and it may be we have spent time in fasting and prayer, and the thing is not granted. We immediately lay it on the Lord that He is not heard when many times the cause is our praying not as we ought. So think about what he's saying here. Instead of assuming that the Lord has withheld blessings from you, or perhaps He hasn't heard you, have you considered whether you are praying amiss? Are you praying, your will be done? Are you asking for God to give me this so I can spend it on my passions? So am I saying, God, your will be done? Or am I really saying, give me this that I might spend it on my own passions? Puritan preachers are never quick to let us off the hook. They never allow us to blame God for failing to answer our prayers. And as Preston continues, he says, Consider again, when you have sought God earnestly, whether it is to not bestow it upon your lust, as the apostle says in James 4.3, when you have a business to be performed, it may be you are earnest with God, but do you not have an eye to your own glory, to your own praise and credit in it? When you were earnest for health, was it not that you might live more deliciously? you got to love the, the language of the 17th century, um, 16th, 17th. But when you desire wealth and success in your enterprise that tend to mend your state, is it not out of some ambition? You know that desire is, that desire is condemned if any man will be rich. Such things God bestows upon men, but to have our desires pitched upon them and to pray in that sense for them is amiss. So just to consider... These things, to consider these things, here's some questions to ask. Will your heart be broken and crushed if God does not answer your prayer? This is a way to consider whether you're praying amiss. Can you find joy in Christ apart from that for which you are praying? And if God does not answer your prayer, what are you going to do? Will you do all that you can to get it? Would you sin to get it if he doesn't answer your prayer? I mean, and and you can see how sin could blind us. It does. I'm sure we can all go through our lives, if we were honest, we would have examples of how 
We prayed for something that was good. We didn't get that, and we were willing to sin to get it. How contradictory that is. God, I need this. I need this so I can serve you with it. But yet, if I don't get it, I'm crushed because I didn't have it. I'm crushed because I didn't get it, or I'm willing to sin to get it. How contradictory to the words that we're saying when we pray to God. You see, oftentimes we pray for things that are inherently good. But we can pray for these things in order to serve our own passions and lusts. A pastor might pray for more converts to feed his pride. A mother might pray for more children because she finds her identity as a mother and is not satisfied in Christ. A man might pray for the strength to serve his family well so that his family will praise him and that he might get all the glory. You see, we can pray amiss for good things. So examine your prayers. And one more thing before we really close out here, before I give just a closing statement. Remember that God may answer your prayer differently than how you think he should. Preston preached this. It may be that a man prays earnestly, that he may have a strong body with which to do God's service. But it may be that sickness of body makes him do him better service because it keeps him in more awe. It weans him from the world and makes him more heavenly minded. Think about Paul. Remove this thorn of the flesh. Remove this from me. But what does God say? And then what's he say? Yeah, yeah. Power is made perfect in weakness. God's power was made perfect through Paul's weakness. Sometimes we think that we know how God should give us what we need so that we can serve him with that. Paul, take this thorn away from me, please. God says, my grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness. John Preston has a lot more to say. Um, If you want to, if you're interested in this, you could read a treatise concerning the whole duty of prayer, also known as the saint's daily exercise. It's in a book called The Puritans on Prayer, or I'm sure you could find it online. Um, but he has many good thoughts. I mean, it's a good, good work there. I would recommend that to you. But just as we close, I'm going to close with one final quote from him. Since we're at time. I was going to summarize where we are, but we, we don't have time for that. But he says this. It is the command which you shall find in Job 22.21. Acquaint yourself with the Lord, that you may have peace with Him, and thou shalt have prosperity. Now you know how acquaintance grows among men. It is by conversing together, by speaking to one another. On the one side, we say when that is broken off, when they do not salute, when they do not speak together, a strangeness grows. So it is in this. When we come to the Lord and are frequent and fervent in this duty of calling upon Him, we grow acquainted with Him. Without it, we, go, we grow to be strangers, and the Lord dwells far off. 
Think about that when you think about prayer. The acquaintance, how we're acquainted with God in prayer. Some of you, you may feel far from God. I don't want you to put too much stock in your feelings there, but I'll ask you this. How's your prayer life? How much time do you spend with God in His Word and through prayer? I think Preston provides us with a good send-off here. To be acquainted with, uh, with one another, we spend time together, we talk with one another. Do you do the same with God? When we come to the Lord and are frequent and fervent in this duty of calling upon Him, we grow acquainted with Him. Without it, we grow to be strangers, and the Lord dwells far off. What's the solution? Pray. So let us pray to the Lord as we close our time together. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Christ's name, and we thank you for giving us your word, for giving us teachers. We have so many throughout history. This man, John Preston, teaches us much. And I pray that we would be convicted and encouraged, that we would be encouraged to pray all the more, that some of these objections that we have, that we would simply see the command to pray and that we would pray. And that we would see the great privilege we have to pray to you, O oh God. O oh, draw near to us, that we might draw near to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray that your spirit would work in us. Intercede on our behalf and help us to pray. And help us to pray rightly. Oh, I pray that we would not pray amiss. Oh, I pray that we would not ask even for good things to spend on our own fleshly pleasures for our glory but that we would pray according to your will. That we would honor and glorify you and give you all the things as you give and as you take away. And that we would trust you no matter what. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name.